Well, let's read. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Let's pray. Father, you are very good to give us your word, to explain to us the purpose that you have had planned from eternity past. Before time began, Lord, as we just sang, Father, you have always been on the throne. You've worked out your plan for your church. You've worked out a plan to bring the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, to the Gentiles, Father, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, then to the church together, Father. Now we are all one, and we thank you for your glorious purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Does everybody here love a good mystery? I love mysteries. Listening to Sinclair Ferguson, he said that the most popular category of fiction for preachers is mysteries. I thought that was kind of interesting. Our passage this morning uh, is about the greatest mystery ever. And this mystery has the greatest resolution ever. It's a resolution that, uh, that defines us and defines our community, the community of the saints, in every possible way. Now, the first rule of uh, biblical interpretation is to know the context of whatever verse or passage you're considering. And the primary unit of context is not a verse. It's a paragraph. (laughs) And verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3 introduces two phrases that show up again in subsequent paragraphs, in the paragraphs that come after this one. And so I put on the board here, uh, I want you to see the repetition of a couple of phrases. In verse 1... Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he uses the phrase, for this reason, again. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses the phrase, prisoner of the Lord, prisoner of Christ again. There is a very intentional flow through here where Paul starts a thought. He then kind of interrupts that thought in chapter 2, verses 
2 through 13, and then he picks it up again in verse 14, and then he expands and goes to the next stage or next step in chapter 4, verse 1. Now let me show you how I see that flow working out. This is kind of the big picture flow of Ephesians 3, verse 1, through the end of Ephesians. First, Paul says 2, verse 11, for this reason, in other words, because pointing back, for this reason is pointing back to chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. He says, for this reason, meaning because God has revealed to me his previous, previously hidden intention to unite Jews and Gentiles into one new man in Christ, and because God by his grace has commissioned me even in my imprisonment to reveal that same miraculous unity to you Gentiles, I, Paul, chapter 3, verse 14, bow my knees before the Father and ask that He would strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of your supernatural calling as one new man in unity, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, so he's saying, because God gave me this stewardship to tell you about the unity that He has created, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about that mission that He gave me. And that's what we're looking at today, verses 2 to 12. And then the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you, you Gentile believers. And the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And that calling, beloved, is a calling to be one. It's a calling to be one. Now, if you lost that, that's fine. We'll, we'll be uh, going through all of that over the next couple of weeks. My title for the message is Out- Outrageous Wealth for Whom? Mystery Revealed. We've been talking for weeks as we've gone through the first couple of chapters of Ephesians about the outrageous riches that belong to us in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's theme in the first three chapters. Now he's going to tell us who it is that has been given those riches. All right. First, we're going to look at Paul's stewardship. And Paul declares at the beginning of chapter 3 that he has been entrusted with the stewardship of a mystery. He says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And when Paul talks about the prophets, he is generally talking about the Old Testament prophets. And I believe... He's saying that this mystery was beginning to be revealed before Christ came, and now it's been revealed all the way. And it's been revealed to me, and I'm revealing it to you. Paul says his assignment from God, by God's grace, was for our sakes. Uh, He's doing this, and he's writing this for us. In the New Testament, a mystery, a mystery is not something that's still hidden. It's not something that's still secret. It is something that was formerly unknown, but now has been revealed to those to whom God 
chose to reveal it. So what is Paul saying was previously hidden? What was the mystery that's no longer a mystery? Well, before we zero in on that, we're going to look at the kind of the negative half of that, or the, the I should say the positive half of that, and that is what had already been revealed. What about Christ had the prophets in the Old Testament already told us even before Jesus came the first time from heaven to earth in the flesh? Well, the answer is a lot. A lot had been revealed. Now, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of stuff and put it up here on the screen, but please don't try to write it down because I'm going to move too fast for you to write it. If you want if you want this list, you can call the church office and I'll get you a copy of the PowerPoint or just this one slide if you want it. But I also will tell you that after the series on Ephesians, we are planning to do a brief series on Christ in the Old Testament. And you're going to see all this again. And you're going to see all the associated passages. Okay, So don't feel like when this flies by, you're going to miss it. What the mystery wasn't. We're going to look at promises about the Christ. The word Christ in Greek means Messiah. It is a Greek rendering, a Greek replacement, if you will, for the word Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one in the Old Testament. Promises about the Christ that were already revealed in the Old Testament. All of these, by the way, are clear in the Old Testament for anyone who's paying attention. First, that the Christ would be from the tribe of Judah and he would be a descendant of King David. That he would reign as king over all the peoples of the earth, not just Israel. That he would be God's son. By the way, I didn't put it up here, but that he would be God. That he would be born as a child in Bethlehem. That he would reign in righteousness and justice. That his kingdom would be eternal, not temporary. That he would be both king and priest. That he would be humiliated, suffer, and die as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the debt of sin for his people. That's very specific, but that is specifically and clearly declared in the Old Testament. That he would be buried, by the way, in the tomb of a rich man, and that he would be raised from the dead. That he would save his people from the curse of death. It's a pretty good gospel, isn't it? It's all in the Old Testament, and it's all clear. In fact, the only way to make it unclear is to change the meaning of, to change the apparent meaning of the passages in which these things are presented which, by the way, a lot of Jews have done and a lot of Gentiles have done. That his great exaltation would come after his death and resurrection. And finally, a point that's not directly, that is not explicitly associated with the Christ in the Old Testament, at least I haven't found where it is, is that both Jews and Gentiles would be worshipers of Yahweh. No, Messiah is the one who's going to make that happen, but... That was established. In fact, over and over and over, God said that. Read Isaiah 19. Read Isaiah 56. Many, many passages. All right. So that's what the mystery wasn't. Well, if God had already revealed... And and by the way, I am not saying that any Jew 
put all that together. In fact, even the disciples of Christ hadn't even begun to assemble all that into a coherent theology of Messiah. Right? I'm saying it was clearly presented, not that it was clearly understood. There's a difference between those two. Okay. So if all that had already been promised concerning Christ, what mystery is Paul talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 6 of Ephesians 3, he says, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's it. That's, that's what was previously hidden and now is revealed. But what does it mean? Well, there are three parts to that mystery that I see. There's the what, the how, and one other thing that will be critically, critically important, most critically important. Let's start with the what. The what of the mystery is that is now revealed is that Jews and Gentiles will be united as one people of God. It won't be Jews as God's special people who get to come really near to God and Gentiles as God's red-headed stepchildren who can only approach God from a distance on the other side of a dividing wall. No, it will be Jews and Gentiles as one people worshiping God and serving God together. See, the prophets in the Old Testament had declared for generations that Gentiles, people from all nations, would be made worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only true God. But the proclamation that Jews and Gentiles would worship God together as one people, drawing near to God side by side with equal standing in His eyes, that was new news. And it was big news. That's the what. Let's talk about the how. How would God bring that about? In Paul's day, the enmity, the hatred that Jews bore toward Gentiles was so intense that even if God turned the hearts of Gentiles to make them his worshipers, which he did in many cases, there were, there were Gentile proselytes who came to every feast in Jerusalem at the temple. Even if God turned the hearts of Gentiles to make them worshipers of Yahweh, any notion that those Gentiles would worship side by side together with Jews in peace with one another was unthinkable. In Luke chapter 4, after the discussion on Wednesday, one of the brothers pointed this out or reminded me about this great, great passage to illustrate this enmity. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus began to preach on a Sabbath in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. At one point he quoted from the great redemption passage in Isaiah 61. And he declared in that synagogue that the promise in that passage of liberty, healing, and restoration from the hand of God had been fulfilled right there in their hearing. And when they heard this, the Jews were, quote, all speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. It was a pretty good reception. But then... Jesus started talking about Gentiles that God had blessed in the Old Testament. And immediately, and this is a quote, 
all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they got up and they drove Jesus out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff to his death. They led him to the brow of the hill to throw him off the cliff. But of course, it wasn't time for Jesus to die yet. And so, as happened several times during his life, he passed right through the midst of those who were trying to lay hands on him and kill him. And he went his way. But the point here is, as long as Jesus was talking about God blessing Jews, (laughs) they were hanging on his every word. But the moment he spoke of God blessing Gentiles, their fawning approval turned to murderous intent. That's a pretty big shift. I point to that passage because the thought of Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel together with Jews, side by side, was just unfathomable. Uh, In fact, just the thought of Gentiles turning to Yahweh was unconscionable for some. Think, Go look at Jonah. (laughs) When, When God told Jonah that he was sending him to the Ninevites to tell them to repent so they wouldn't be destroyed, Jonah said, God, I would rather die than see Ninevites repent. God used him anyway. If the thought of Gentiles turning to God was repugnant to Jews, the thought of Jews and Gentiles being made one people, worshiping God from an equal standing in the eyes of God was unthinkable to Jews. And because it was unthinkable to Jews, it was unthinkable to Gentiles. If somebody hates you that much, (laughs) you, you, you tend to kind of steer clear of them. But now, through Paul, a Jew writing to Gentiles, God declared that the unthinkable was exactly what He had accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. The how of the mystery, that's the what, the how of the mystery is through the Gospel. Also in chapter 3, verse 6. Through the Gospel. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said to his Gentile audience, When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it, God sealed you with His Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So Gentiles came to be the people of God by believing the gospel. Whoever you are, if you belong to Christ, the the way that happened was by the same cause, which is grace, through the same means, faith in the same person and work, the perfect person and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, just as with all other redeemed children of God, regardless of what their background was or who they were. In other words, by faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The sameness in every aspect of every believer's salvation means that Jews had no advantage over Gentiles, and from the other perspective, Gentiles had no disadvantage compared with Jews at all. That was new news. That was a great mystery revealed. So that's the what and the how. (laughs) But the most amazing, most awesome 
most astonishing part of this mystery that has now been revealed isn't the what, it isn't even the how, it's the who. One man in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.6, that Gentiles, here's the mystery revealed, Gentiles are co-heirs, co-members of the body, co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. In verse 6, that's the who. Now listen as I read Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. Listen for the who. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul says, For you, plural, have died, and your life, singular, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Many have become one. A few verses after that in Colossians 3, Paul says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self, literally the old man, with its evil practices, and you have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You, plural, have become one new man. Conformed to the one who created that new man. A renewal in which there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all <laughs> and in all. Paul himself was living proof that this beautiful promise was true. The promise of Jews and Gentiles worshiping God side by side at peace with one another because we have been made at peace with God. We've been given union with Christ. You see, before Jesus laid hold of him, Paul had been as rednecked about the unique standing of the Jews in the eyes of God as any Jew had ever been. But the resurrected Christ blinded Paul to make him see. And see he did. Around the same time that God revealed this great mystery to Paul, He revealed it also to Peter. But Peter, already a disciple of Jesus, didn't embrace this truth right away. It wasn't at all easy for Peter to accept this new reality of Jews and Gentiles made one in Christ. And it was even harder for many of Peter's associates in Jerusalem. It took some convincing for God to bring Peter around to this amazing truth. But God did convince him, and God used him powerfully, just as he used Paul. In Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas were summoned to Jerusalem to defend their gospel ministry among the Gentiles and to resolve the question of whether Gentiles should be circumcised, it was Peter 
who defended to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem this revealed mystery that Paul and Barnabas had been proclaiming. Equal standing in the eyes of God for all believing Jews and all believing Gentiles. In that chapter, Acts 15, starting at verse 7, after there had been much debate among the leaders at the church in Jerusalem, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What was that yoke? It was the law. The law was the tutor to bring men to Christ and no one could bear it. No one could, no one could become righteous based on the law-keeping. And he says, why are you putting that yoke back on their neck, on anybody's neck? And he says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. There you have it. That's the mystery revealed. Brothers and sisters, your connection with the other believers in this room and with the other believers on this earth is not defined by your race. Your connection with your fellow saints is not defined by your primary language. Your connection with your brothers and sisters in Christ is not defined by your age or your favorite music or whether you like to raise your hands when you worship or keep your hands at your side. Your connection with the people with with whom you have been blessed to spend eternity in the presence of God is certainly not defined by whether you have a fat retirement fund or live paycheck to paycheck or are supported by government assistance. Your connection with the people of God is not determined by whether... They face the same struggles that you face or have suffered the same abuse or the same oppression or the same injustice that you have suffered or whether they have the same physical or mental impairments that you have. Your connection with the people of God is determined by one thing and one thing only, and that is that you have been brought into perfect union with Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are all firstborn sons and full heirs of God through faith in Jesus. We talked before about how there are no secondborn sons in the family of God. We all have the double portion of the inheritance that goes to the firstborn. In fact, we all have the entire inheritance that belongs to Christ. Why? Because God put every one of us, man, woman, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, into Christ. So what's His is ours. You are in Him and He is in you. Period. Believers, the most wonderful thing that God has done for you individually is the same wonderful thing that God has done for all of us together. He has put us in 
Christ Jesus. He's brought us together as one into everlasting union with Christ. That's the great mystery of the ages now wonderfully revealed. And beloved, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. In verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 3, Paul goes on to say that God revealed this mystery to us through Paul so that this mystery would likewise be made known through us, through the church, (laughs) to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You ever get the feeling that you're being watched? You are. You are being watched. We are being watched. God is using us, His church, to display to angelic and demonic beings His amazing, gracious plan to create one new man out of all kinds of people. And the angels are going, wow. The second thing, second main point here, uh, after we get beyond, and now that we've talked about the mystery, first, Paul's stewardship to, to make known to the Gentiles this mystery now revealed. The second thing is, that's very critical to this passage, is that God's grace to Paul is God's grace to us, the church. God is glorifying Himself through this new man that He calls the church. He's showing His character and His ways to angels and demons, to lost sinners, and to His church, through His church. And that is why everything Paul says in this passage about his own ministry is exceedingly important to us, and he knows it is. In verses 1-13, through Paul is telling us about the sacred stewardship given to him by God. But he tells us about his stewardship so we'll understand critically important things about our stewardship, about the the ministry that God has handed to us to carry on. What made Paul an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles? What enabled him to now reveal this long-hidden truth about God's plan to create one new man from among both Jews and Gentiles. Well, he tells us that it was two things. Verse 7 and 8. It was two things. It was the grace of God and the power of God. The grace of God and the power of God. And the power is part of the grace. Verse 7, Paul says, He was made a minister of the gospel of Jesus according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, he said. That's Deliberate double redundancy because grace is a gift. So according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me. And then he says, according to the working of His power. And then in verse 8, he kind of restates it and adds a little bit of thought here. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. And then he tells us that the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known through the church to heavenly entities. 
Now, when Paul says he is the very least of the saints, he's using a double superlative in, in the original. It'd be like me saying, I am the leastest of the saints. The least of the least. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he said, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Near the end of his life and ministry, after Paul had been made miraculously fruitful by God's grace among the Gentiles, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul saw himself as the least of the apostles, the least of the saints, and the foremost of sinners. See, he saw himself not only as unqualified on his own merits to do the work that God had given him to do, he saw himself as least qualified to do the work that God had given him to do. And that's right where God wanted him. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians 12, you'll see that God helped that process along. And Paul is telling us all of this because that's exactly where God wants you and me. The phrase in verse 7, according to the working of His power, should sound very familiar to us. In his first prayer for the saints in chapter 1, Paul asked God to open the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Now, just before he prays yet again for us about that same surpassingly great power that indwells every Christian, power that's actually a person, Paul gives us a real-life example of how great that power is. And the real-life example is Paul. He already knew, Paul already knew personally and transformingly the power of God that he was praying we would know that we have. He already asked for that, for God to open our eyes to that power in chapter 1. He knew that his one and only qualification to fulfill the assignment to which God had called him was the supernatural, miracle-working, grace-sourced power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. And he knew that that would be the only qualification that you and I would ever have to do the good works that he said God had prepared beforehand for us to do. You'll never understand the heart of this man, Paul, who was so mightily used by God if you don't understand that he considered himself to have nothing at all to do with that usefulness. And that's one of the most freeing things that you will ever know about yourself. You have absolutely nothing to do with your usefulness to God. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but all of us need to hear this more than once. In the prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, by which Paul concludes the whole what we have been given in Christ part of this epistle, the first half of the epistle, in that prayer, Paul prays that God will grant to us, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. And then in verse 20, he concludes that prayer with these words. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, 
according to the power that works within us. To, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What power is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think? The power that dwells within every single saint. The power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. See, God is not the great cosmic situation changer. He changes the hearts of human beings one soul at a time through His agents. And He empowers His agents, His image bearers, that He has renewed and redeemed and made His own. He empowers us to do eternally powerful things in this world in the lives and hearts of other people. Because that's why we're here. Alright. The power... Paul's telling the Ephesian saints and all the saints that the power that equipped him to minister to them is the very same power who equips us to minister to others. He's saying in effect, saints, you want to know how powerfully God intends to use you? Well, here's one possible example. Look at how powerfully God has used me in your life in my militant and murderous rebellion he saved me in my continual inadequacy he used me and you are the fruit of that power second corinthians 3 paul says i don't need i and my coworkers we don't need letters of commendation because you are our letter of commendation In the last verse of this passage, Paul says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He's saying, in my imprisonment for Christ's sake, God's still using me to pour out His grace on you. So what do you expect God to do with you? There are so many Christians, beloved, who see themselves as inadequate to accomplish anything for God. And and that's supposed to be that's supposed to be such back page news that it's completely irrelevant. One of the most liberating, most freeing things that we know about us as the redeemed people of God is that all of our usefulness and all of our adequacy and all of our power comes from outside of us and now lives inside of us. It's not ours. And so... (laughs) However humble your circumstance, however limited your resources, God can use you to do whatever He wants to do in this world. Do you believe that? God wants you to believe that. And He wants us as a church to believe that. All of the power to fulfill the calling that God has given to us comes from God alone as a gift freely given to those He loves and loves to use. Our calling as redeemed of God is a very demanding calling. It involves striving. It demands diligence. It requires perseverance. It requires self-denial. It requires love. But what we must know about this supernaturally high calling in Christ is that all of the power to fulfill that calling comes from God alone. It is a gift. It is a gift. 
So our striving then is not striving for qualification or ability or authority or power to usefully serve as God's ambassadors on earth. The only qualification or ability or authority or power that we will ever have and that we will ever need is Christ in us and us in Christ. So our striving is a daily, moment-by-moment labor to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth in utter dependence on God. In utter dependence on God. It's a beautiful dependence. We've been talking a lot about this uh, lately, but what that means in practice is we're supposed to be a people who pray. The, the thought of trying to carry on the work of Jesus Christ in this world without praying is, is ludicrous if we are this completely dependent on God to be useful. That, by the way, is why all of the magnificent promises in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are blanketed on every side with prayer. I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. It's one of the first passages I committed to memory as a young believer. And it's been, I've said this before, but this has been the, this has been the bedrock of my, whatever usefulness I've had for God. It's the only reason that I'm able to stand up here at all or to do anything, anything for God. Listen to this. Second Corinthians 3 verses 4 through 6. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Our adequacy is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and He's in every single believer in this room and in the world. And He's going to do and can do and will do whatever He wants to do in this world through you. Do you believe that? Last verse, Colossians 1.29, it's short. For this purpose I also labor, Paul says, striving according to His power which mightily works in me. (laughs) Mightily. That's what you're supposed to be able to say. Heavenly Father, we are blessed to live as the redeemed of God who know the revelation of the mystery of the ages that is both fulfilled and made known in Jesus Christ. By Your grace alone, we know, we see, and we believe that You have bound us all together into one new man in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we know that You have filled us with power through Your Holy Spirit to make us miraculously useful as one body to do the work on earth of our one head, Jesus. Father, when any seed of division arises in our midst, make us quick to recognize it and to banish it by Your power. And when our eyes turn toward ourselves as the measure of our usefulness to You, Father, turn them back to Christ alone. Do your eternally powerful work through these earthen vessels that you have made vessels of honor in your hands. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.